put your money where your mouth is. Like, <laughs> John will fight like, you in a parking lot right now. Hello and welcome to episode 73 of Major Revisions. I'm Jeff Atkins and with me as always is John Walter. John, did you get your two papers reviewed today that you needed to do? Yeah, fuck no. <laughs> I think you were at a different banter thing, but then like this occurred to me literally as I was like saying it. The, uh, <laughs> we're recording in uh, early February 2022, so hopefully this makes it out approximately in February of 2022, but Nature Opinion dropped some hot fire today saying that the problem with the review crisis is that early career researchers are not reviewing nearly enough papers and had the auda- audacity to include an anecdote of somebody who reviews one to two papers a day. Yeah, that's bonkers. What is that, back of the envelope? Let's see, two... Times five times fifty-two. Assuming you just do it on work days, five hundred and twenty papers a year. Yeah, it's outlandish. I don't think that's really the problem um, with with publishing. But call me crazy. We can uh, get into that one at some point. Maybe that. Maybe actually, this will tie into what our main topic is of the day. But but to, to kick us off, John, I, I, I have an idea for you. I want to propose that I think we need to restructure how we do the review paper. Now, I'm specifically referring to, and I'm not talking about like single author or even like small consortium review papers. I'm talking about maybe you go to those workshops or those get togethers or whatever, and you end up with like 20, 30 people or even more who are all like, yeah, we need to com- get together our ideas and about the field and really move this forward. And how we're going to do that is a review paper or some type of really focused, um, you know, kind of synthesis paper idea, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of times these workshops will splinter off and you'll get like a special issue out of this. Sometimes they're too focused to do this. But even this is the problem with special issues too, is that a lot of times you'll spin off like 15 to 20 authors per paper for that special issue. So what this I think ends up happening most of the time is that first you have the logistical problem, right? Is that Really, whoever that lead author is, has got to be the person who's hurting the cats. They have to be the person to take the impetus to really kind of move things forward. But that said, like everybody else, to varying degrees, is going to contribute to that. Now, a lot of times, in my experience, you end up with a lot of well-meaning people who do want to provide a lot of good ideas, but you end up with a lot of competing ideas sometimes. Or really, mm-hmm. really, it's not even competing ideas. It's more of just, like, nuanced ideas. You know, at the end, everybody's like, we're making lemonade. But somebody wants to make pink lemonade. You're really stuck on making, like, a classic lemonade. Somebody really kind of wants a half-sugar lemonade. And then somebody over here has got, like, blue raspberry or some shit that they want to make. Now, it's all lemonade. <laughs> but my idea is what if we... And this is a, this is a dumb idea. Maybe that's the wrong word. This is a ridiculous, ridiculous idea. What if we could make... You had a general introduction paragraph, maybe. And then we had, like, sub-articles. Where the teams could break off into sub-teams. 
can you tell the government job has already been influencing my thinking on this, this idea of like sub teams <laughs> and basically just turtles all the way down committees all the way down and then like the heart of that synthesis or review paper where you're it's this this really probably only works for ones that you're presenting like new ideas and new ways moving forward but the the body of that is basically the same thing written three or four or five different ways because i feel like Sometimes with these crazy big projects that you end up with this chimera effect where we're arguing over pedantic language and, you know, we end up with like these crazy just pieced together definitions of things that don't really make sense when, you know, you could build your argument for this, whatever this thing is we're writing about, and then I could build mine and then they end up just complimenting each other. We're offering like some nuance of the perspective instead of us trying to jam the ideas together and it not work or it just being frustrating. So what do you think? You know, I, I actually don't think that that's as ridiculous an idea as you made it out to be. I think, you know, I think we'd have to get like, you know, some journal to be brave and, you know, be the first one to, to do it. But you know, I feel like in, I think there's a sense that the literature should be a conversation. And I think that that sense is somewhat under-realized, actually probably a lot of ways under-realized, because there's sort of like this tension between uh, the literature being like scientific truth and the literature being a conversation. And I think that there, at least right now um i can't you know speak to 50 years ago very well but i think at least right now the literature doesn't function very much as a conversation because it's rare that papers are really directly in conversation with one another right like we have so many research groups so many different journals and you know i don't have a lot of firsthand experience but like anecdotally journals seem reticent to publish, you know, comments about uh, papers in their journals. Um, And usually when they do get published, they're critical comments. Uh, They're not really like discussions of, of the work. Um, and, 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 you know, and so normally what gets actually published along those lines are, you know, kind of like somewhat respectable respectful takedowns of the original paper. Yeah, which I don't I don't know if that's really that helpful necessarily. I mean, I think it can be when there's truly like, you know, a record to correct, but I think it would I think it could be a lot more interesting in some cases if there really was an effort to embody, you know, multiple perspectives that aren't necessarily disagreeing, but um, you know, but emphasize different things, but to kind of like you were saying, you know, package them together in a way that they can be in conversation with one another and, and read as such. So maybe we could call these like forum articles where you literally like have a very tight word limit and there's like an introduction thing to it. And then each one has uh, less than 1500 words or something. Like everybody gets a read like a writing prompt. And then as review... You actually just send them to the other people. 
who are also writing the forum articles. That's round one. And then once they go through round one, where you get to basically read everybody else's article, then they go out for independent peer review, then they get published. I'm down. Okay. It's an, inter- it's an interesting model. I'd be cool with trying it. All right. So yeah, so journals hit me up, have this idea. I don't know where this was. Like, so I, I think you made the good point. Like it's It can't be about things that there's like a hardcore disagreement. It's got to be about things where there's just shades of nuance difference. I think it could be about things where there is legitimate disagreement, but it shouldn't be like, so a lot of, you know, a lot of like comments on articles now are, you know, sort of like refutations of the work that it's either methodologically or logically flawed. And I don't, I don't think this is the kind of thing that we're talking about. I think we're talking about things where there's, um, you know, sort of like reasonable, good faith, you know, disagreement or emphasis on different perspectives that, you know, that could be drawn out in a more conversational kind of format. And it would it would have to be about fairly narrow things, too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, I, don't, I could see it as being even as narrow as, as maybe this one's too controversial, but like what an actual species is. Right. Like that's probably a bigger, actually deeper question. Right. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that's actually narrow at all, but (laughs) I mean, I'm talking about like situations where the definition of a term is like one or two words off. Like we could literally do the difference between measurement and estimation. Right. Like that sounds easy. But, you know, if you think about like measurement tools that we use in ecology, you know, a dissolved oxygen sensor. Right. Like that is measuring dissolved oxygen. That's giving me that. Right. But then like once you start to, you know, maybe model that or you plug that into a secondary step to where you're combining that with flow within a river or something, you know, maybe calculating something bigger. Like, is that a measurement again still? Or or spectrophotometers. Yeah. I, I think that's an interesting philosophical and methodological question, because like the measurement that you're taking is light, which, you know, is not like measuring the length of a fish. You know, you're you're in you're making an inference that that reflectance means what you think it means, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, there's a there's a sense to me, at least, that you're a little bit removed from you know physically measuring something like the length of a fish, and and then you know some things you measure measure with a spectrophotometer are you know a little bit closer to being. A measurement than others but if you then you know turn that into a spectral index that is you know correlated with some process that you're interested in like we do with vegetation indices i mean i i definitely think that that's estimation and not measurement yeah absolutely absolutely yep i think anything almost anything that you can do from a satellite is an estimation more than a measurement oh even in situ spectra yeah even so pretty much any remote sensing for the most part is an estimation it's not a measurement um you know you're measuring you know either irradiance or the time it takes for a signal to attenuate or interact or something everything else is estimation at that point Uh, so maybe that one's bigger maybe maybe there's just we don't know a goddamn thing in science and if we reviewed two papers a day we would be able to interact with the literature more um, and then I don't know when we would have time to work to pay the $12,000 US that we would need for the APC charges for nature, but it was just nature neuroscience. The rest is just a measly like 6000 for their open. 
access and like piece of cake piece of cake right yeah so i'm curious hit me up journals if you if you want to do this um i'm glad to, to tell you more about my forum idea um what we need is more old school white man dialogue a la plato and aristotle i don't know if that's the right way to frame this or not <laughs> that's probably actually just made me think this is a terrible idea the more that i think about it but um yeah, I, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I it's just kind of going through processes of this stuff. I think that sometimes we, sometimes the group effort dilutes the message when it would be more impactful and useful to maybe not try to come to consensus, but also just offer the deferring or slightly nuanced points of view. You know, I'm not talking apples and oranges. I'm talking, you know, like you said, different types of apples. I'm on board with you there. Well, cool. Thanks for thanks for raising that. That was interesting. So, I think the main thing we wanted to talk about today um, is uh, sort of a, a harken back to some of the stuff that originally made this podcast popular, right? So, part of that was episodes that we did, um, especially in our you know first year as a as a podcast, that were about advice or discussion that. Uh, really kind of sought to demystify aspects of being an early career scientist from applying to grad school to writing grant proposals. But that was like five years ago, six years ago now. <laughs> January, uh, yeah, October 2016. Yeah, uh, yeah, so damn, time flies. But I mean, along those lines, like, you know, the zeitgeist really changes quickly and, uh, you know, we kind of gain perspectives new over time new perspectives over time. So I was kind of, you know, thinking about, you know, what's some place where your advice to early career scientists has changed over the past few years and why? This has been a hard one because I know I've been struggling with it since you, you proposed this idea and I really like it and I know there's more of it. And so I'm looking through like our kind of podcast here, like our first, I mean, we did a lot of work in 2017. We did. We did a good job. You should feel good about that. You know, yeah. Two, two episodes a month. You know, I'm thinking, okay, so I want to look at this early. The, you know, we talked a lot about peer review and we talked about like the future of kind of ecology. Those were like our first, those were our first like four, three or four episodes. And, you know, I think that we got into like rejection and stuff. And I think a lot of that was that, you know, at the time that we were all getting in the swing of, you know, that, that writing and submitting and, and even reviewing papers was becoming like something that we were acquiescing to and getting used to at this point. Right. And, you know, at this point, like I've almost forgotten like what that process is like for a new person. So like the idea of, you know, writing is, is something I'm constantly working on and constantly trying to get better at. And, you know, I don't know if I suggested doing outlines at the time, but I would definitely suggest now being way more focused on the planning and construction of the paper which is something honestly like that i'm struggling with and trying to get better at right like writing good coherent outlines i think you know as far as putting together a paper for the first time i would you know, actually this came up in, in conversation today with, with um, somebody was thinking of like really explicitly thinking about who the audience for that paper is and specifically like a journal you want to target initially like you know to me that's that's a real quick way for me to think about where to how to focus the paper and how to put it together not just like 
you know, like this is, I think this is different than just how to construct a study or how to analyze data and right not, right not, right? Like, I think, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, once you already have a concept of, well, this is the thing that I'm trying to answer, and then this is how I'm going to answer that. I'm talking about the physical construction of the paper. Yeah, totally. Um, you know, like, where am I going to focus this? And, you know, having that sounds easy to me in a way, right? But, like, that's after, like, nearly a decade of experience of, of reading the literature and being immersed in it, where it's, like, secondhand, where I can tell you, like, okay, well, this is where we're going to go first. And then if it doesn't go there, then we're going to revise this part and then we can send it to here and then to here. And I have like a one, two, three kind of thing set up. It's not that like those things make papers radically different, but like they make, they help shape where you want to go with that, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, definitely. And, but that's also like, that's ridiculous to expect somebody early career to kind of do that, you know? And so I think that's somewhere where like a mentor kind of really comes into play of like, okay, your first paper, these are the kind of two places maybe that I'm thinking, let's look at what's in those papers, you know, those journals and kind of get you acclimated to what's in that research and be kind of help you know, to that, which is, you know, I don't think necessarily advice that I would have given at the time because I wasn't, I didn't fully appreciate that. So I've been working with a few students on um, starting to write their first scientific paper. So I've been talking about this with a lot of a lot of students and also a lot of other established-ish to very established scientists. What part of the paper do you write first? It's going to depend on the paper. Okay. General rule, though, is going to be like methods. Because I started writing that section usually before everything's done. Because I started writing that, for the most part, when I'm planning the study out. You know, I'm going to write out the... It's going to be the methods and then the background introduction stuff. Gotcha, gotcha. You know, the methods, honestly, is something I try to write when I'm at still kind of the grant or proposal stage. You know, like, that's going to be the outline. Because that, that helps me know, like, okay, this is what I'm actually doing. Is you know, this is my study area. This is this. This is that. Blah, 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 blah. That said, like, you know, I may have the research questions first. Which is, I guess, you more in the introduction, right? So it may go, like, research questions or hypothesis, then methods, then rest of introduction, then results, then discussion. What about you? So I almost always write the introduction first. Um, I almost always write my papers like kind of order, orderly through from introduction to discussion, and then I usually write the abstract last. Oh yeah, abstract so um, last. So I was I was I, a colleague of mine um, who I work pretty closely with likes to write the abstract first, and there's a really intriguing reason uh, that I like thinks think that that makes sense and it's that it's kind of like the you know 250 300 word pitch of the paper so it's like a really condensed way to like figure out like what the core message is that you want to tell um and i've been thinking about that for a little while as i've been talking with it and like i kind of feel that could be a good practice and i think i'm going to try it see how it works out if you go to big conferences, that's kind of what you have to do in a way for presentations, right? Because you have to give the abstract months before you probably do the actual work. <laughs> well, that's fair. Yeah. I've always thought of it as like, okay, you know, a lot of times with field work, you have to get the data first. But before you go and do the data, I've always thought it's kind of helpful to sketch out the methods 
so that you're more familiar with what you're going to be doing. And sometimes I go so far as to like even have students like come up, like use other data or fake data or something, and or even like or have them draw and sketch. Like, what do you think the figures are going to look like in this paper? Mm-hmm. You know, maybe not so much as like to the pedantic point of like what's the relationships going to be, but you know, it's helpful to think from a hypothesis standpoint. Like, okay, this is my expectation, and I can kind of draw this out, and so I expect this paper to you know, do this and we're going to show this and we're going to show that. And then like introduction is something that I've always thought is you can kind of build as you go along. So I, I wonder if that partly reflects like a different style of doing science because I don't do field experiments, mostly like analyze data, occasionally uh, like analyze a model. I mean, I don't want to say like, I don't plan what I'm going to do, what I'm going to do with the data set, but like <laughs> um, there there's, there's definitely an extent to which like I kind of feel my way through an analysis as I learn about the actual like qualities of the data. But my but like my code is my record of that. And so I can always go back to that when I'm going to write up the methods to be like, okay, this is like the process that I took. I kind of have the record of that. Yeah, I usually, you know, don't have the like kind of plan for how a study is going to take shape where I could like really legitimately sit down and write like a method section um, before doing the study. So I want to, I want to, I want to counter this offer. This as a counterpoint, a forum perspective, if you will. Do you think your abstract idea though would work for an undergraduate or like masters or early PhD student? So I actually think that, I mean, I think that there are, I don't think there's one right way to do this, but I think that it actually could work quite well. One of the reasons that I think that is that sometimes one of the hardest things to get a person, you know, who's kind of like just learning the field, what the big ideas and the big conversations are in an area of research to figure out how they want to pitch a work. Like, what is the big idea and the core message that they want to get across? I mean, the other big challenge is, like, just figuring out the conventions of writing in this style. So that, and that's something that you can tackle, you know, starting at any place in the paper, really. But the methods actually, I think, make a a good sense because it's more concrete than a lot of the other sections of the paper are. I think getting early stage writers, and I think I was this way myself to kind of like see the big picture is a is a challenge. And so focusing on that right from the outset might be a good strategy. You know, I think that you bring up a good point. And I think it, it also is related to the, what you talked about, you know, the difference in how you know, a lot of what I do is more field based, you know, finding this, this niche where I can focus more on methodology and I can focus more on, you know, that aspect of science, you know, in a way. Right. And so it maybe makes more sense for me to do that. Like a lot of times, you know, but also that's somewhere I, I acknowledge as a blind spot of that sense of like the bigger picture. You know, it, it's not that I don't understand necessarily the bigger picture where science, by science or, you know, fits in, but it's also more just, I would rather do more of the workaday nuts and bolts pieces. So maybe it's just, and that and that's not meant in any way to be negative or be a slight against what you're saying. I think it's an interesting idea, and it's probably something that I should you know more focus on. You know, I definitely could see like this the approach that you're outlining working 
for you know more of like a more advanced student or or more advanced scientist but that, that could just be me right like that could just be you know my own blind spot that i can be aware of but struggle with as well maybe i should do that i should do that maybe yeah i mean i actually haven't done this before but yeah one of my colleagues does i think i'm going to try it and see you know see how it works Everything you need to know about getting into grad school. I don't know if I would change anything about that. I guess, like, I would reiterate strongly. I wish, you know, look, you know, we haven't went back to do, you know, 71 episodes times an hour. It's 71 hours worth of stuff, right? Like, you and I have not listened to some of these in a while. I don't 100% know what we said. I feel like I probably said this at the time, but if I didn't, you know, the advice that I would give now is, you know, the, the name of the school for grad school is not the same as you might think it is. Not to slight any of our colleagues or friends who work at Ivy League universities here in the U.S. or some of the more prestigious universities in other countries, but I would strongly maybe consider other places too if you aren't aware. But also, like, some of this sucks because it's like you know, if I think about you know, if we're giving the the people who we would be giving that advice to are so underprepared and there's so much information that they are lacking to make that useful advice. So I don't know what to say. <laughs> you know, like, I, that sucks, man. I don't, you know, if you're, you know, in what I work in, in forestry or ecology, anywhere that has a forestry or an ecology program is probably a pretty decent place. You know, I think it's more important that they pay you. Like, yeah. Get paid. And no, we're wait. probably going to be okay. Well, which is actually, like, actually my point is, like, I... I mean, I don't think we ever said, like, don't care about money, right? Like, that would be a really we definitely dumb thing didn't to say. say. That. Yeah. I mean, we not that we're capitalists or anything, but we definitely did not say that. But, like, I think, you know, I think something that has changed for me over the past few years is, like, I think that, that I was really very optimistic, a few, like, several years ago that, like, you know, all right, like, I'm going to get a tenure track job. And it's going to be at a good school. And so I'm going to get paid a decent amount of money. You know, if I have to make some sacrifices financially, you know, between now and then, like, I'll make up for it later. That didn't really happen. You know, and I don't think it happened. Like, I don't think it happened for you either. So, like, I don't think we would have ever said, like, you know, don't worry about how much you're getting paid. But, like, get your fucking money. If you yeah. can. Hell yeah. You know, and that matters for, you know, for grad students, it matters for postdocs. The other thing that's happened is like, I think the I think the difference, because schools have different means, like we're in this transition kind of culturally to, you know, from like treating grad students as like, well, you're lucky to get anything uh, to like, oh yeah, you're like employees and doing really valuable stuff for the good of the institution and the good of the field. And so now, like, I think the difference in the offers that I received for grad school, like, we're all within, like, two or $3,000 a year of each other. And, like, there were probably places I could have made more, and there are probably places that paid ass. In fact, I know there are place, places that pay a lot worse than got as a graduate student, I think the majority of schools were in five grand of each other. And now with like what we're seeing with some of the really wealthy institutions um, who have had a lot of pressure put on them by students um, who have unionized, which I'm all for, 
like there's like a threefold difference. Yeah, Princeton just raised theirs to forty five thousand. Yeah, like there's like a threefold difference or close to it between like some of the lowest funded schools and the highest funded schools. And there's, you know, there's cost of living and all kinds of stuff, but like it's a huge, there's a really big range now and people should be aware that, you know, counting on defraying earnings now or taking on debt now so that you can do this, like it really might not pay off. Yeah, really not. And uh, here's the here's the crass math of it. If you're not aware, there are principal investigators and professors who think that the current mode of paying very little is a good thing. They think that it will incentivize you to do the work and do it more quickly, which benefits them. And that way, you want to get out. Universities also have an incentive to move you through very quickly. So that they can get more people in. Paying you more hits their bottom line. So what they do is they pass that on, that cost, to the professors typically. To either their startup or to any grants that they bring in. Which again, then catalyzes the professors typically to maybe let in fewer students. Or to try to you know incentivize you to move along some other way. Right? Like the current structure is absolutely stacked against the student institutions aren't going to be loyal to you people might be and they might represent institutions to varying degrees um but the institution itself isn't going to do jack shit for you as an individual you are entirely 100 percent replaceable and if the now, last couple of years have not like made that abundantly clear to you i don't know what to tell you yeah i mean if you're going on an interview ask Ask about the money. Ask about the package with the PI and ask about how much it actually works to the you know students and postdocs because it is a really big deal. The fact is that like salaries in our field are not enormous. It's not set up like law or medicine where everyone's kind of expected to take on a bunch of debt, but there's a reasonable expectation that once you get a job that the salary is going to reflect that and and so taking on you know taking on debt you know scrimping to make ends meet for you know five years seven years you know ten years if you're thinking about uh you know postdocing like if you have the opportunity to get paid better take that seriously yeah do it Maybe our advice to grad school is just not do it. No, that's not my advice. Maybe I mean, so, no, I, I, guess, I guess I still like it, but it's also just it needs to be radically overhauled. It need, it, there's a lot of things about it that could be improved. Um, I love what I do, man, and I don't think I could do it without, or at least nobody would take me seriously while doing it. Yeah, that's fair. John, has anything changed for you about what motivates you or inspires you? I mean, there are different... I study different things now than I did five years ago, so I guess, yeah. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You know, I wouldn't say at its core, you know, like, I like to do things that advance concepts and, you know, kind of, like, push a little bit at trying to identify or understand something that is new. I like working on methods um, because I think that those are key ways that we actually make progress and open up new avenues of research. And I like doing things that are relevant to 
to conservation and management. I don't think either, I don't think any of those things have fundamentally changed, but definitely the systems and the questions that I'm asking have, have changed over that period of time. What about you? No, I don't think so. I think the way that I do things is, but I'm not really sure I'm a very inspired person to begin with. You know, I'm pretty sure at the time I rallied, I rallied, I should quit predicting what I think past me would have said, but you know, I'm not one of these people who's motivated by passion. I think passion is kind of pointless and privileged and silly. I like work and I value work. And I think you should try to find something that you can do with your time that you feel is productive. And maybe that's motivation and inspiration. I also, you know, firmly believe in the idea that, you know, nostalgia is kind of pointless and I don't think you should have heroes either. And I am kind of a benevolent nihilist in a lot of ways, which I feel like I've been validated in in the last couple of years, which honestly, (laughs) not great for the mental health, mind you. But, you know, if you get that regulated, I feel like the benevolent nihilism is kind of fine. You know, like I remember like I was really impacted by an essay when I was much younger by Steve Albini, the record producer and musician. Uh, just talking about, you know, like why he, um, you know, doesn't take a lot of, you know, record or points on records and doesn't, you know, just kind of works the way that he does, right? Like very anti-commercial, but like get paid kind of attitude too. And so like he had a good, you know, spiel, I think on Twitter the other day, actually, he's like a, a fun one to read. He, he's a good embodiment too of that idea of, uh, being kind but not being nice, which I think is, you know, like we, we too often value, I think, the idea of nicety and comity and decorum in society when really we should more value kindness and directness, right? Um, it's the difference between people on the East Coast and people on the West Coast. People on the East Coast are kind, but they're not nice. People on the West Coast tend to be nice, but they're not very kind. You know, I don't feel like I have a change of any motivation or inspiration or anything, but it's it's more of just I value the work. And I think it's good to find something that you find value in and kind of do that. But, like, I don't have any aspirations that, you know, I don't do mantras. I um, appreciate yoga, but I'm not going to put up any kind of thing, right? Like, it's just more of just the work-a-day mentality. I honestly think people would be better off if they embrace that, too. But that's just me, you know, whatever. But you should check out Steve Albini's kind of post on why he does what he does. It's a fascinating read and a fascinating um, perspective that I think you get from somebody who is, in their field, an absolute, like, high achiever, like right? Like, you can't reproach any of the work that the guy's done as far as, like, being a sound engineer. But I highly respect the way that he's approached that. You know, not mm-hmm. screwing, not screwing anyone over. And just being real plain and honest about this is what I'm worth and this is how much it'll cost. And, you know, you know, maybe that's it. I don't know, man. I think passion is a luxury for rich people. I don't have that luxury, I guess. So, you know, I've been, I do feel fortunate to be able to find work that, that pays and that, you know, I enjoy. And, you know, I do think. You know, I'm also one who advocates, like, I think we should have more trade schools. I think people would be better off if we, you know, like that was a more option for people. Yeah. I mean, I got to be honest with you. Like, I think, um, you know, I kind of, I kind of feel a little bit conflicted about that because I, I want to agree with you. Like, I think that there are a lot of ways that our field treats academia as this like 
falsely sacred thing. But on the other hand, like, I've definitely made choices in my career, my life that have been driven by the fact that this is one of the only careers where I have as much control over the work that I do, uh, where I have very few people looking over my shoulder, and that by and large, I get to choose who I work with. Yeah. And I think that there is value to that. And it's one of the reasons that I'm still here, even in a somewhat, you know, non-traditional kind of role is because like, like there are do, there are things that I do really value about that and I think that there's a relationship between that and passion um but but personally like I don't relate to people who are incredibly engrossed in a particular study system or a particular you know organism or type of organism I just want to basically do detective work about the natural world. Yeah, but that's kind of what I'm talking about, though, too, is is, is just not, is that to, to enjoy the work for the work. Like, I don't, I don't, I just, I don't feel a great calling in this life towards anything. And I personally don't think that's a failure on my part. I agree with that. Yeah. You know, we are not, we don't, are not born and, and, and die for some great, meaning and so you know whatever i said on motivation and inspiration in may of 2017 i hope it's in phase with what i say now is that (laughs) you find the work that you enjoy but i don't think enjoyment is necessarily the same as passion if i could not do this job and something prevented me from doing it i would find something else and i would find enjoyment in that i would find the thing that i needed to do and so I don't know, maybe I have a shitty understanding of what passion is, right? But like, I think of like this Julia Roberts live, love, pray kind of thing. And that just seems indulgent and gross to me. Maybe I'm wrong. No, I kind of, I kind of draw a, a, a distinction between like passion, like the idea of being passionate about something and the idea of thinking of something as a calling. And like, I don't really think that this is a calling. Like, I think this is something that I enjoy and I'm pretty damn good at and I'm fortunate to be able to make enough money at it. But I do think that I have passion for it because I enjoy it. You know, I'm engrossed in it, but I think that if I couldn't do it, like you said, like I'd do something else and hopefully find my way into something else that I enjoyed. Yeah. This is a consistent thing that we kind of come, maybe come back to. I think, honestly, man, like, maybe maybe we need to leave it off, but, like, I think, uh, I think it reflects that, like, you know, both of us have been going through this journey of, like, finding work in this field and, and, um, and, like, figuring out a way to make it a career, and I think in some ways that that is jading, um, it to be to be perfectly honest but like i think it also cuts the fact that like eventually like we just gotta make enough money to live and if we can't do it doing this then i think it's both of our preference to do it doing this <laughs> yeah because like we said we, we enjoy so the work yeah we enjoy we enjoy the work um 
But I, I think both of us have kind of been on a, a similar, uh, a similar road from that respect. And, um, we've come out with a, a somewhat similar perspective on that. No, you know, I, you know, I think I agree. And, um, I guess I, I, it's not really so much advice that I give like, but it's more of like, I wish I had more of that perspective of the different possible avenues that one could do science. You know, I don't think I would change my opinion of what a PhD would be though. And maybe that's a, a conversation for another day. You know, I personally don't have any problem with the sense of the PhD being structured generally as it is that it's supposed to be original work, original research, obviously nuances slightly to a field or subfield. You know, I think there's probably ways to make it less academic focused necessarily, but also I don't think PhDs are as academically focused as maybe they're sold out to be. But, you know, neither one of us are strictly... You know, tenured. I mean, neither one of us are in tenure track positions, though. I think I don't know. Do you have like an actual professor title now? No, no. I do, but it's only in like it's like a weird ass one. It's not like a traditional one, right? So it doesn't really mean anything. You know, there's no way I think we would get to where we are without like the PhD process that we went through. But I could see different ways to structure it, though. I'm not sure I would. I would advocate for a wholesale, complete retooling of it, either. You know, I think there's definitely some some areas there where you know, the entire actual PhD process could maybe be enhanced or changed or augmented in some ways to make it, you know, easier to inform people about the different possibilities that are non-tenure track positions. That said, like, also, like, I, I you know, I hear and I read about this stuff on, on Twitter and whatnot about how there being a lot of bias towards, you know, PhDs who are not professors or whatnot. But, like, I, I don't really experience that, honestly. I'm not, have you ever run into that? Not, not in sort of like interpersonal type stuff. One thing I've thought a lot about is, you know, the way that systems are set up to, you know, kind of like favor tenure track faculty over other, you know, people in other types of roles. And and that I think it is, is very real. I think that that stigma might be a little bit stronger in fields where there's a strong a bigger bigger industry presence like i you know i think that i could be wrong about that i think you know i think we're also still early career that might do something too because a lot of people take kind of winding paths to tenure track positions these days at least you know i have a policy of not working with assholes so it's a good policy. That would be advice that we should give to people is not worked with assholes. I scroll through year one here, and I'm well into year two of the podcast. I can't really... kind of want to go back and listen to episode 32 since I was young. I don't even remember what the hell that hashtag was even about. Oh, I remember what that was about. That was... So that was uh, actually related to, you know, kind of grad school personal essay advice. But there was this, oh, like, okay. Twitter thread... That like trash that as sort of like this trope of, you know, since I was young, I have loved X, Y, and Z. And so I want to do this with my life and blah, blah, blah. So we were, we were responding to. I hope we hit that one hard in the paint. Oh, I think we, I think we went pretty hard in the paint on that one. In case you can't tell, Jeff and I, and Grace too, but Grace isn't here tonight. Uh, we kind of really dislike. <laughs> elitism <laughs> which is ironic because i don't know i feel like i'm sometimes treated as an elite which is weird to me so weird 
No, I th- I think I think that's fair. I mean, there are a lot of ways that you could consider me an elite. I just I just am like you know, put your money where your mouth is. Like, <laughs> John will fight like, you in a parking lot right now. <laughs> I, Which is funny because ironically, I would probably be the one out of, the, of us, including Grace. That would probably fight someone in a parking lot. Yeah, I mean, you can you can accuse me rightly of many different kinds of privilege, but like, I just I just don't really like putting on airs for stupid reasons. That that's what I mean by I hate elitism. So we have these couple navel gazy episodes where we jump into some kind of more of the new direction of the podcast. Is there anything you would have done differently in the last five years, podcast related, podcast related, or even that you would have told yourself? jumping into this in that fall of 2016 you know i was always surprised that this podcast got as popular as it got um and i kind of hope that we can get back to that but i think you know i think the biggest thing is like you know we've ebbed and flowed a lot for different reasons but um i wish we could have closed some of those gaps in recording yeah, I wish I would have told him, like, you need to keep recording because people actually send really nice things and, you know, people I didn't even know that, that you know, kind of listen and, and hope, you know, I hope after we put these these two that we've put in the, the box here and put them out that, you know, people embrace that. I'm very proud of all the stuff that we put out and I think all of it's fairly good. But I wish we would have kept up the impact factor draft. That was... <laughs> oh, dude, that actually was a great idea. I mean, we could re- retrospectively calculate that and... And bring it forward. Yeah, and we missed March Manimal Madness the last two years, and that was actually kind of a lot of fun, too. So, and we also, I think, it have a minimum of three or four episodes that were recorded and never released. And Some of those were for good reasons. Some of those were for very good reasons. <laughs> <laughs> all right, then. Well, you know, thank you all for listening. Um, you know, and at least until further notice, you can find us on Spotify until, you know, Joni Mitchell and Neil Young convince us maybe to leave i don't i don't know what that i would definitely go on record say fuck joe rogan um but uh you can also find us wherever podcasts are free and equal for the people we're on all those places and get vaccinated get vaccinated several times over you can find us at at major underscore revisions on twitter and our podcast email is major revisions show at gmail.com most likely maybe all right thank you guys